You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello. Welcome to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mina Harris. I'm head of strategy and leadership at Uber and also the founder of the Phenomenal Woman Action Campaign. And it is my great pleasure to be in conversation with San Francisco's mayor, London Breed. So you ready to get started? I'm ready. All right. You guys ready? All right. Um, so I think a lot of people in this room know your public profile as mayor, right? And what I love about um, conversational settings like this is it really lets people get to know my good friend, London, um, and get to know you a little bit better. So I really um, want to kind of start at the beginning of your journey growing up in San Francisco. And I know that your grandmother, like mine, was a really big influence um, on your life and a big inspiration for you. And you know, someone who gave you tough love when you needed it. Yes. <laughs> Can you just talk about that relationship and what she meant to you? Well, believe it or not, I was somewhat of a difficult child. Um, <laughs> my grandmother raised me, and I felt like I was being disciplined every single day. Um, but um, she really supported me. She encouraged me. Um, she really was very blunt. Um, she was honest about what was going on in our community. Um, but she also made it clear that, uh, our responsibility is to really take care of one another. And so she did a lot for folks in the community. My grandmother wasn't the most affectionate person, but she was very giving. Um, she would always cook. She would always give folks food. And I would say things like, mama, why, why are we giving away? We don't have much. And she's like, be quiet. That's what you do for people. This is what we're supposed to do. And never went into detail and explained it. But then I found myself later in life when I started working in the community, doing some of the same things that my grandmother did in terms of discipline and telling kids to behave, but also making sure that I was feeding them and working with them and having conversations. And so, um, you know, it was a very challenging environment, uh, really challenging with my family, too, and the dynamics in my family and having uh, family members in and out of the criminal justice system, having um, family members and friends who were who were killed and mm-hmm. going to funerals on a regular basis and, you know, just the drugs and the violence and um, just all of the things that it entailed. And in fact, you know, the public housing development that I lived in, especially people know Plaza East and the Pink Palace and that area, folks would never come to this part of the city um, because it was really challenging. And so um, I grew up in the midst of that, but I think that's what really gave me the strength to do a job like this mm-hmm. um, because um, I'm really fortunate that um, I had so many great people, including my teachers, including counselors, including places where I worked who really supported me and encouraged me. And um, I'm here today because... Uh, so many people invested in me, and I didn't really understand at the time how valuable that was or what was really going on. And um, this is why what I do is so important. Um, this is why Opportunities for All, a program that I started, where we're going to make sure that every high school student has a paid internship here in San Francisco. Um, this is why that's so important to me, is providing an opportunity for young people to grow and to thrive no matter where they come from. Um, so that really shapes how I make policy here in San Francisco. And um, it was tough, but um, I made it through, and here I am as mayor of one of the best cities in the world. And it, it really is um, an honor and, and something that I don't take for granted. Every single day, um, I know that it's a blessing to be in a position like this. And with that comes an incredible responsibility to do good with, with this position. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that, you know, she was really a part of giving you that sense of community and duty, right? And also teaching you and showing you what kind of future you could have through community. And you talk about that being so central to even your um, being encouraged to go to college, right? This um, community that you had all around you, despite the challenges that you were still encouraged to succeed and to, you know, get out of that. And um, I have a fun sort of when we were young (laughs) memories 
which is that I think we were at some like fundraiser and one of our friends had just graduated from law school and I was on my way to law school and you were like, dang, everybody's going to law school. I need to go to law school. <laughs> and, you know, of course you went on to get a master's in public administration and you stayed in San Francisco and continued to be in this community. But like back then you had no idea, right, that you would become the first black female mayor of San Francisco and the second mayor in San Francisco's history, right? I, I mean, I, I know I didn't. I wasn't even thinking about running for office. Um, at that time, as you know, I was working in the community. I was working at a nonprofit agency, the African-American Art and Culture Complex. I was on the Redevelopment Agency Commission. I knew that being actively engaged in politics in some capacity is really a way to help change policy and make things better for the community that I grew up in. And during that time, we were dealing with some of the worst violence in our city's history where um, a number of homicides, I mean, they were happening in the Western Edition in the Bay view mostly in the mission, but especially in the Western edition. And the crazy part about this is I grew up in this neighborhood where sadly so many of my friends were getting killed, but then this was their children. And it was very, um, for me and thinking about even law school is just really thinking about, well, I'm working in the community. I'm working with folks in the community, but what can I do more. Um, and, and, and part of it was wanting to um, educate myself about the laws, educate myself about policy, educate myself about ways in which I can really make a serious impact on the neighborhood and, and change things for the better. And so um, ultimately, I was like, I don't want to really be a lawyer. So um, <laughs> I don't think no, I don't think I'm going to go to program. law school. So why not? The next best thing, I went and got my master's in public administration at USF. And it just really um, was a great experience and, and just helped push me, I think, in the right direction. I, I decided I want to run for supervisor mm-hmm. because uh, the opportunity presented itself. And I wanted to, number one, have access to the city's budget to make changes and to cut waste so that we can invest city resources in a more effective and efficient way that serve people um, better. And also I wanted to change policies and I wanted to a seat at the table so um, that uh, the policy, some of the policies that we've made in the past and, and still are making, sadly, have unintended consequences. And I wanted to have a seat at the table uh, to put my perspective on the table for the purposes of developing better policy. Um, so here I am. Um, but it wasn't as if I thought this was going to happen. It, Can we go back to that moment, by the way, when you first ran? Because you know, you were the director of the African-American Art and Culture Complex, right? So you were already in the community, working with youth in the community. But the moment when you decided to run was not an easy one, right? Yeah. And an easy path. And you were typically, as a lot of women are told, as it turns out, and women of color, you know, it's not your turn. Wait yeah. your turn. It's not your time, right? Um, and made it challenge. Nothing comes easily, but it was challenging. Can you talk about that yeah. experience? Well, um, that? folks might remember, you know, uh, the District 5 supervisor, Ross Mercarimi, had became sheriff, and then Ed Lee was mayor, and he had an opportunity to appoint someone, and he didn't appoint me, and I had to make the hard decision. Um, you know, like, I was, I just couldn't sit back, because I, I just felt really strongly that um, if he had appointed someone I thought was someone I could work with and someone who would focus on the things that I cared about and understood those things, then I would have been supportive, but I didn't feel that way. And so I ran against that person. And in fact, um, it was a very tough campaign because, you know, I didn't have a lot of support. The only person that actually was an elected official that supported me was Kamala Harris when she was the attorney general, your aunt. So, um, she went with me to pull papers and I had all the community folks from all the different neighborhoods, but a lot of elected officials and other leaders and other organizations, um, they weren't supportive. And so, I just went about my business, knocked on doors, talked to constituents, and um, I didn't give up. And I focused on the work, and I focused on talking about me, and, and here we go. I mean, it was it was really amazing. And, and when I won that night, I thought, I thought, whoa, I won. This is crazy. <laughs> 
I mean, I think that about every election. I'm just like, whoa, is this really happening? It is happening. And it's like, wow, this is incredible. Right. And here we are. Well, you know, to put this in context, I think about the fact that we are seeing history made not only here in San Francisco, um, but across the country, right? We're in this moment where so many women are stepping up into um, leadership roles and, and leading in their communities and running for office. And many of them for the first time, right? And they're, and they're winning. And it's just an incredible moment we're, we're witnessing. But as I'm sure you know, as is the case for women and uh, women of color especially, it's not always easy being the first or the only, right? And yeah. it can be lonely. It, it can be um, a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. How have you navigated that being often in these circumstances, the first or the only? And where do you draw support and strengths in those tough moments? Well, um, it, it can be lonely. And um, especially because you know, there's still so many challenges that exist with my family and my friends. And um, here I am, mayor of San Francisco, and, and I definitely want better for them, um, which is why I'm pushing for changes to policies and equity and other things that we're focused on. Um, and my strength comes from, you know, a higher power. Like I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. Um, and I know that's not popular to talk about when you are in elected office, but, um, you know, I'm a spiritual person and I pray and, and, and I ask God to give me the strength to, you know, make the right decisions and do the right thing and, and give me guidance and support around, you know, these very tough decisions. Um, and so, um, and then I have a lot of really close friends that are my great network people that I can call on um, mm-hmm. for advice and counsel and, um, you know, just, just some amazing people, some positive people, strong folks who um, just really are there for me. And, and that has really been, you know, very helpful. Um, what's also great about um, being in a position like this, you know, what I, what I love is when I'm out in the community and someone comes up to me and says, you know, I'm rooting for you. I believe in you. I know you're going to make San Francisco better. Like that, that really gives me strength too, because, you know, they're excited about, you know, what we're going to be able to do to change things in San Francisco, because we know that we have a lot of challenges that need to be addressed. And so, um, I get strength from, from just really being out, especially in the neighborhoods and also, the work that we do mm-hmm. and just someone who we get housing for and people will walk up to you in tears. Like even today where we open 83 new units of family affordable housing and 50% of those units went to formerly homeless families. Yep. I mean, <laughs> and I announced that Saint today during that time is right next door because of the windfall money that the city received. We're going to build another 250 units. A hundred percent of those 250 units will go to homeless individuals. And it's, it's like, that is, that is, that gives me life, Mm -hmm. you know, just to know that we are making the right investments and those investments have a real impact on somebody's life because I grew up in poverty. I grew up, you know, in, in a situation where, I mean, we didn't have heat most of the time. We didn't even have a shower. This is over 20 years of my life. We never had a shower where I lived and the conditions, you know, like of where I lived were just conditions that, you know, no one should have to live in. And so when you've had to live like that, you know, and it, I wasn't homeless, right. but, you know, I've had to live in the kinds of conditions that, you know, I, it's still in my head to this day. I'm reminded every time I think about like when you've had to live like that for over 20 years of your life, I mean, and then, you know, people are living like that or people are sleeping on the streets, then there's nothing that's going to be more important than trying to figure out a solution to that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there's so many things, um, and, and this is just an incredible time, and, and it's something that I, I truly enjoy. Well, and it speaks to the fact that your life experience informs your decision-making and your leadership in part because you understand personally the impact that this has on real lives, right? This isn't just sort of a policy question. Yes. You understand the impact um, on real lives. 
And I'm curious, general, I mean, economic justice is a big issue for you and building on what you just talked about and the circumstances in which you grew up in, how does that life experience inform your view on economic justice? I think, um, you know, it, it, it everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, last year, we uh, were able to get legislation um, passed to eliminate fines and fees. Um, and actually, our late public defender, Jeff Adachi, was a leader in this particular effort because um, what happens when someone does a crime and they unfortunately, um, there's restitution, so this does not remove restitution if there's money owed, but the courts have all these layers of fees for your ankle monitor, your social this, your services that, your court fees, and all of these fees, and um, what would happen at the African American Art and Culture Complex, because I would, you know, sometimes hire people who had served time, folks I know, made a mistake, um, want a second chance, give them a second chance, uh, after a few paychecks, all of a sudden you're getting a letter to garnish their wages for these things. And then, you know, you have this, you know, young man upset and uh, mad and saying, I don't even want to work. I should go back out there and sell dope. And, you know, you just think like, no, you don't want to like break somebody. Right. So, um, those kinds of experiences, like living and knowing what people are going through just to try and get their lives together, um, and then what they choose to do when they feel like the system constantly financially beats them mm-hmm. down for so many different reasons, um, it, it's something that I know we need to address. And so um, we've been doing it um, with the city with the fines and fees. And before, when I was on the board, um, reducing uh, the fees for commissary and for phone calls and tow fees and all all of these things that sadly have a really horrible impact on poor people mm-hmm. um, and their ability to, you know, just survive in general. And so um, I think about those things because I think about, you know, what I had to endure. I mean, my grandmother and our phone bills for my brothers collect calls from jail and how, you know, like our phone would get cut off on a regular basis because she couldn't pay it. Um, you know, but then there's other families who would put their phones in other people's names. And, you know, I mean, just... All of those things I think about when trying to make changes to policies because it just sets you back and it sets Mm -hmm. you back and it sets you back. And you're like, when are we ever going to get ahead? When are we ever going to be in a situation where, you know, life is okay? I don't need to be wealthy, but I just want things to be okay. And so I think about, you know, just all of my experiences and how policy can play such a critical role in really changing that. And then also the right financial investments can play a critical role in helping to really change someone's life as well. Mm -hmm. And it's the point that, I mean, we're seeing this in the bail reform conversation as well, that we're finally having at a national level, right? But that these fees add up and these families are something like, you know, $400 away from catastrophe. And if you're paying that out in fines and court fees, it's, you're done. Um, and then what it does for your credit too. Exactly. You, you know, for example, you're paying a bails bondsman and all of a sudden, you know, you stop paying and then the collection fees and then it goes on your credit. I mean, it just, it's a never ending cycle. Right. And San Francisco, in fact, is the first city, right, to um, implement this. And it's now being replicated across the country. So San Francisco has always been a leader on a lot of this stuff. But can you talk about the process, too, to get that, you know, legislation passed and and to get political support to actually make that happen? Yeah, well, part of, you know, how um, I approach doing legislation is probably different than some folks. Some folks have come up with an idea and then all of a sudden they're like, we're going to tax everybody for this. So we're going to, you know, charge a fee for that. And and so what I decided to do, because I wanted to make sure... Um, that we understood it. So there was a task force, of course. There were all the different city departments, the sheriff's department, juvenile probation, the public defender, um, the treasurer. You know, we brought everyone that touched this issue to the table to have a conversation, to gather the data, and to get a better understanding. And then also to talk to some people who paid the fees and some people who were struggling to pay the fees. And we discovered that, you know, basically of, of all of these fees, about 21,000 people owed millions of dollars and we weren't even collecting like 15% of these fees and just the amount of money we were spending on pro- on process right. um, was just ridiculous it was just money down the drain and so gathering that data and showing that you know it's better to just really 
um, not include this because it's also not helping. It's right. not doing anything uh, to help someone get back on their feet and do well in life. It's, it's in fact, in stopping that. So the process was really about the data, the conversations, bringing everyone to the table, uh, folks who care about this particular issue, and then crafting the right piece of legislation um, that would help address this particular issue. So it was, it was definitely a process um, and a successful one at that, which brought so many people together for something that folks are just really happy about. Mm-hmm. So homelessness, moving on to oh, um, other policy <laughs> issues. Um, you know, it's no secret that San Francisco, like many cities, is struggling with homelessness. And you mentioned this earlier, but you're working to add more shelter beds and to build more supportive housing. But a lot of these challenges also seem to be around um, mental health and drug abuse, right? What is the city doing to address that specifically? So, you know, it's, it's, you're right, a very complicated problem and, um, difficult to help people, um, sometimes who are struggling with mental illness and substance use disorder. Um, in fact, um, I've been really focused on trying to, uh, look at mental health differently in San Francisco, where we really, um, shine a lens on this particular issue and we try and push through policies that are going to help us help those individuals. Um, I am uh, hiring a director of mental health reform that will serve under the Department of Public Health um, so that we can develop a comprehensive system under one umbrella to really try and address what we know is a crisis. Um, in fact, um, oftentimes, sadly, people uh, who use meth, um, the psychosis that's brought on because of that drug use sometimes is not always reversible. And it's like a lot of stuff going on where we're talking about the issue. We know what the data says. We know what the problem is, but we have no real solutions. Mm -hmm. And so part of what um, I'm pushing for, and again, it's somewhat controversial, but um, strengthening our conservatorship laws so that we are able for someone who can't make decisions for themselves, we are able to, um, through the courts, uh, provide a guardian that will make decisions for them, whether it's their family members or whether it's someone from the city and county of San Francisco. Um, and in some instances, uh, this would require someone to be committed to one of our mental health stabilization beds. And in fact, uh, we've been able, since I've taken office, to open open 100 new mental health stabilization beds, and we're going to open another 50 this year um, for the purposes of trying to get people help, trying to get them treatment, um, trying to get them the wraparound support that they need. And the controversy here, of course, is people feel like, well, why are, you know, people have rights. And I, I understand that people have rights. This is really, you know, not about trying to take away their rights, but you know, I'm not blind. I see everything everyone else sees out on the streets with people who are struggling. And we are basically cycling them in and out of our jails. We're cycling in, cycling them in and out of our hospitals. And that's not a public health solution. And so Senator Scott Weiner got one bill passed that's, you know, not as effective as we would have liked it to have been. So he's introducing amendments to change it, to make it stronger, uh, so that our laws here uh, locally, that we're able to um, strengthen our conservatorship programs, open more mental health stabilization beds. But more importantly, um, it's time that really we really, uh, uh, you know, shine a light on uh, mental health reform form in general. Um, because when you talk about when someone gets sick, right, you know, you break a leg or you get hurt or, I mean, you're diagnosed and, and, and there are ways to treat that. But, you know, something happens where someone has dementia, someone is schizophrenic. I mean, there are medications and things, but what does our health system do um, in terms of providing the support for those who may not have family members who can help support and take care of them. And so we got to start planning for the future. Um, and mental health reform is something that's really important to me. And looking at what's happening around those struggling with mental health here in San Francisco and the solution similar to how we look at those who are struggling with physical health issues. Um, so reforming that is something I deeply care about. 
and really um, trying to, you know, change, you know, how we address that particular issue is important. Um, as far as um, the drug use, um, you know, it's 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 a real challenge. Um, we have with a lot of the drug dealing, and this is again controversial, but you know, this is what it is. Um, we we sent people out to try and talk to people to say, hey we are prepared to work with you to help you get employment. Um, but you know, we're not going to continue to allow you to sell drugs out openly on the streets. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of that. And then the police come in and we, we make it clear if someone takes us up on our offer, we will help them and support them and work through our various jobs programs because we have so many incredible opportunities for people to work in this city. Um, but if folks are going to choose to be out there openly dealing drugs, I mean, we have to arrest people for breaking the law. And, and it's controversial, but, you know, I mean, the police are arresting them. They're not necessarily being held accountable. They're not necessarily being um, prosecuted, which is another problem. Um, I'm happy to give someone a second chance, but there has to be consequences. And and right now, um, people are coming to San Francisco and openly dealing drugs, and we can't continue to allow that to happen. Can you talk about another aspect of that crisis, though, which is drug use? Yes, as well, right? And that being done openly on the streets. And and part of and and we've we've been cracking down on that in particular. But part of you know what. I talk about is safe injection sites as a, a possible uh, solution because we, we're not going to be able to stop everyone from getting access to drugs. And just because we don't want to see it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's just going to disappear and go away. And safe injection sites are really a way to, um, from my perspective, get the needles off the streets, get the people from using off the streets. But more importantly, if someone who is struggling with substance use disorder and when they say, I need help, you have to help them on the spot. You have to get them into treatment right then and there. And so we're talking about a, a, an environment where most likely someone who is struggling with addiction is going to ask for treatment. Um, you know, I, I tell, you know, the story sometimes of my sister and how she would, you know, be in the tenderloin and she'll call us and she'll call collect and she'll say, come help her. And by the time, you know, one of us get down to the tenderloin, we can't find her, we're looking for her. And, you know, it, it, it's just, it's so difficult. And when, especially when you have a family member and it's, it's not an easy thing to go through and we have to make it easier for people to get into treatment. We have to provide um, um, more uh, easier access to treatment. I mean, just recently I ran into somebody I've known my whole life who was like, London, I'm ready for help. I need some help. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I got to get him help. And before I can turn around, he's, he's gone, right? So people have to have places that they know they can go when they decide that, hey, I'm ready for some help. And so I'm looking at all possibilities. It's not going to be one thing that solves this issue. Um, it's a real challenge, you know, throughout the United States. And so I'm open to looking at places. I mean, we, I visited Vancouver, Canada, where I saw firsthand, you know, both before and after photos. And I couldn't even believe when I looked down this one alley, it's, 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 it was worse than anything I've even seen in San Francisco and what they've been able to do where they have had zero overdose um, deaths um, in their facility, where they've been able to refer thousands of people uh, to detox who have not come back through the system. And yes, they've had people come back through the system, but for the most part, um, the fact that they have detox right upstairs and they are ready for po folks and they're meeting them where they are and they're bringing it indoors and the needles that used to be everywhere are not out as much. I mean, just some of the things that they've been able to do and they have not solved the issue, but um, it's a lot better than it was before. So when they started um, and they did polling about 
you know, less than 30% people supported the idea of doing a safe injection site. And then after they were open, I think for 18 months or so, like seven, over 70% of the people um, that they surveyed supported them and was happy and felt like it was making a difference. And so um, I, I just think I get it. I mean, I, I was absolutely no when I first um, heard about them. I'm like, no way. Why would we do that? Why would we make it convenient for people uh, to shoot up and to use drugs? And just, you know, seeing what it's been able to do, um, knowing that um, people struggle with, with addiction and they struggle with alcoholism, they struggle with, people struggle with, with certain things. It's, it's, we have to have solutions uh, for people to meet them where they are when they are struggling. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting, and I'm, this is my perspective being in the tech community as well, that we know that this is about real lives and the human condition, right? But nevertheless, people are frustrated. They are so frustrated. And I think part of that comes from, you know, seeing someone on the street suffering and not knowing what to do. And I think, you know, all of us in this room are thinking, what can ordinary people like us do when we see this to in that moment, right? How can we respond? How can we help in a way that feels like it's actually making a difference? And, and, and I'm frustrated too. Um, and so this is, we, I would ask anyone to call 311. And the fact is, I get it that sometimes you will call 311. And you may be on hold for some time, but also um, that person might be gone by the time someone from the homeless outreach team comes. Um, and so what we try to do, because what we noticed, um, we have this system called One System where we have an organized, coordinated entry system. Um, we also have, you know, a new team of folks who are working together out of our 911 center with our police department, our homeless outreach team, the Department of Public Health, DPW, and we have where we know there are real challenges in specific areas. We have this targeted approach for specific neighborhoods where we are probably most likely are familiar with the person that you're calling for. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's very helpful to us because we're trying to uh, make sure that we track people and we try to get them help and, and we um, we can't force, as you know, um, anyone into a shelter or into support. Um, but I will tell you that um, by being aggressive uh, and being out there and having those conversations and, and trying to work with people, um, some folks, after years of trying to work with them, have taken us up on our offer. Um, in fact, you don't see those large tent encampments like you used to. Since I've been in office, we've gotten almost a thousand people off the streets. Um, and that was really, um, tough. I mean, I've gone out there myself, of course, um, as some of you might know, I walk the streets, I've talked to people, I'm tracking the folks that I'm meeting that I'm trying to get into the, you know, shelter system, which is why we've added another 338 shelter beds, because we know that some people are, you know, struggling. And so a shelter bed just to get someone off the streets is is really critical to have um, so that we can meet people where they are. But I would say that to the ordinary, you know, like somebody who's just walking and, and, and you're just, you want to help, you know, call 311, um, you know, report it if you can and if you have the time, because it does help us. Um, even if we get there and they're, they're gone, um, it, it helps us to track where we know people are, um, so that we can, uh, really provide efforts to, to address this issue. Um, and, and that again is not a solution, but we are working really hard, um, to try and help some people one person at a time because it is, it is, it is really, I mean, I, I can tell you so many stories about, so many people and and what i'm also finding what i'm also learning by being out there and having the direct conversations a lot of the folks who i'm meeting you know are not necessarily people who come from san francisco um they tell me their story about why they came here um and it is it's heartbreaking but uh san francisco alone can't bear um you know really the burden of solving the homeless crises for the the entire country. Mm -hmm. Um, We we, we need help. Um, Close to 24% of uh, the homeless people throughout the 
United States or here in the state of California. And, you know, we need a, 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 a we need support. We need help. We need a bigger um, vision um, and, and uh, more folks uh, who are added to uh, this conversation because we are spending a lot of money to help a lot of people. And for every, you know, this is what Jeff Kaczynski, who's the director of homelessness uh, and supportive services here in San Francisco, for every 50 people we house a week, we have like 65 people to take their place. Mm-hmm. And, and that is not going to solve the issue. Um, so we, we have to have partnerships and, and we have to work on a larger scale, uh, but we're going to continue to chip away at, at doing everything we can, um, including adding what I'm pushing for a thousand new shelter beds by 2020, pushing for building more housing, um, more affordable housing for low, moderate and middle income residents. Um, we've, and how, sorry, how do you view that? I mean, in the, in terms of the intersection with homelessness and the housing crisis. So the, the, the right now, I mean, between 2010 and 2015, when we were pushing for jobs, 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 eight jobs for every one unit of housing. And people have been getting squeezed out, not just here in San Francisco, but the entire Bay Area. The economy is thriving. It's growing. Um, we have so many requests for commercial office space. And, and, and also, we have underbuilt. We haven't built enough housing to accommodate that growth. Um, so that's part of the challenge, which makes, you know, affordable housing, you know, more, uh, higher in demand than ever before. And so I think the direct, the, the direct connection is, you know, just making sure that we have the stock, that we have places for people to go, places for people, um, to live that they can afford. Um, and so I'm pushing a really aggressive housing agenda, um, getting rid of the bureaucratic red tape that stops housing. I mean, the 83 units that we open today, uh, the nonprofit developer that they, they, they identified that site 11 years ago. And then it took five years to get it done. It's like, no, it shouldn't happen like that. Um, so I'm also taking a charter amendment to the ballot where a hundred percent affordable housing and a hundred percent teacher housing can get built as of right. If it fits within the codes and the zonings, no up zoning, no anything, but they're just doing it by what the law says that that should happen as a right without all the drama that comes with stopping projects. Um, and so uh, it's, it's important. It's critical. Having safe, affordable places for people to live is, mm-hmm. is critical to addressing this issue as well. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. So to shift the focus a little bit to the national stage where there's just a little bit of frustration as well. Um, how do you view San Francisco's role in that conversation, right? I think we talked about um, San Francisco being the first city in the country to eliminate court fines and fees. And I like to think that we are a leader nationally, right? There's the um, saying, as California goes, so goes the nation. I think it should be as San Francisco goes, so goes the nation. What I mean, do we have a special responsibility in terms of our um, progressive leadership on a lot of these issues? And how do you view that? Yeah, and I, and I do think we have a, a, a responsibility because I mean, we, um, we're willing to take risk. So, for example, uh, same-sex marriage and what happened to the rest of the country. It was absolutely amazing, and it happened here in San Francisco first. We said, you know what, we're just going to open the doors. This is what we're going to do. Um, and so many other things um, started right here in San Francisco, and I think that um, when I went to the U.S. Conference of Mayors for the first time, uh, what was so interesting is meeting all these mayors who were telling me all these things that they were doing in their cities because of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were saying, oh, yeah, we're doing neighborhood preference, you know, and I know New York did neighborhood preference first, but no other play, no other city was doing neighborhood preference where um, 40% of all the new affordable housing goes to the people who live in that particular district first um, because folks were being pushed out of their neighborhoods. And so now everyone's asking, how did you do it? How can we do it? Um, things like that. And I think, you know, we're willing to take risk. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important um, to take risk to uh, 
uh, try and figure out ways in which things can get done. Um, but also, um, things like, you know, um, fines and fees. I mean, that's a, you know, an issue around economic justice and, um, just doing these kinds of things really, it's not about trying to put San Francisco on the map, but it's really about, you know, trying to make sure, um, that we are leading the way and, and setting the tone for, you know, what should happen throughout the rest of the country because you go other places. Uh, it's not like San Francisco. So many other places are struggling, um, you know, and it, with pushing forward policies. Like there are states that we don't even go to or we don't spend our money in because of their policies against LGBT folks. And so I think that, um, you know, we got a long way to go. And, and I think we've been setting an example for a really long time and, and we will continue um, to do just that. Um, and, and the whole purpose is to make sure that life is, of course, you know, better for our residents, but we want, you know, things to be better throughout the entire country as well. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like I, you know, being a San Franciscan, I, I have a lot of pride in the, what you said, which is that, I mean, it's in our DNA, right? Yeah. We are, we are innovators. We are creative thinkers. We are problem solvers. We are going to do that no matter what, but it's about also understanding the responsibility that comes with, um, the leadership inherent in that, right. And, yeah. and having leaders like you who are taking it to other places, um, and making sure that people know about the good work that we're doing. And, and people like are like, wow, San Francisco did this. Wow. San Francisco did that. And, and really like, it's, it's so interesting. They're like, Wow, they elected you mayor and, 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 and it was like, whoa, like, because they, people know that, you know, we have a very low, you know, less than 6% African American population. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. Like it, it, and, and I'm, when you go outside of San Francisco, people are always like, I mean, yeah, they, they have talked about the challenges with homelessness, but some of these other places are dealing with their own challenges, but they just, they think we have such a beautiful city. We're doing great innovative policies and, you know, they feel like they can stand up too, because we're not willing to be, you know, pushed around, you know, by anyone or especially, you know, not the president. And it's like, you know, I, 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 I say that because, you know, one of the things that I've had to do was really fight for our funding for uh, the Caltrain electrification project where they awarded us the grant. He came into office and immediately, you know, tried to take the money away after the federal government committed to giving to, um, you know, the Bay Area. And this was about transportation in the Bay Area. And sadly, we had to reach out to those, you know, Republican states to say, look, this is job opportunities for your constituents and their constituents and start calling them and then we got our money back but it's it's like you know we're 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 citizens of the United States too and we're not going to be bullied and let someone try and take away something that was uh committed to us and and we're just trying to um really make sure that San Francisco is a better city and that the federal government makes its appropriate investments in in our city and in our economy because we pay our taxes um and we deserve it mm-hmm. uh, so i'm a <laughs> I didn't want to make this about the president. I'm sorry, but I, I didn't utter his name intentionally. <sighs> um, so we have, you know, five minutes and um, you're, you're approaching your first full year as mayor. And oh what are your, you know, you, we talked a lot about policy and, you know, sort of your journey, but what have been your reflections so far and no pressure, but if you were able to do everything you want to do while you're in office, what will San Francisco look like in 10 years? What oh is my your goodness. vision? I'm, you know, I'm hoping it'll look like this in, in a few years, not 10. But, um, you know, the first thing that I, I really wanted, I wanted to make sure that we didn't have these large 10 encampments in San Francisco. So set out for that particular goal. Um, you know, Civic Center Plaza and, you know, where the parks are in the front yard of City Hall. I wanted to clean that up and make it a, a better place. Ultimately, what I want to see is I want to see a cleaner San Francisco. And I want to see a San Francisco where we don't have anyone who is homeless, where we have a place to take someone if they are homeless. Um, and so I want it to be a cleaner, a greener San Francisco, a more equitable city where opportunities exist for everyone. I want this to be a city when you walk down the street and you're going to a show or you're going somewhere to enjoy yourself, 
you're like, man, I love this city. And that was a great meal. Um, (laughs) um, and, and, and that's really what I want to see. I work, I work every day to try and, you know, just accomplish something that, you know, makes, you know, people feel better about the city. And, and, and this problem that exists here is not unique to San Francisco. And it's not something, uh, that I believe we're going to be able to address overnight. Um, but, Again, I celebrate the small things. I celebrate the small victories because all those small things are going to add up. And then we're going to look back and think, wow, do you remember last year when all those tents were lining up on DeBose and 13th in that area? I mean, I still see some challenges there, but it's not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Wow. Remember when I didn't like walking through Civic Center and my car would get broken into? Well, that probably is not happening anymore for the most part. Mm -hmm. You know, like just the things that used to happen, I want those things to go away. Because when someone comes to San Francisco or someone goes to see a show or goes shopping or goes about your life or what have you, or just trying to get on public transportation to and from home and work, I want those experiences to be good. Mm -hmm. That is what I want to happen for the future of San Francisco and, uh, you know, every day the decisions that I make are are towards that goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to do some Q and A. If you're up for that, um, we have a. Mm-hmm. I knew this going into this. We have a pretty sophisticated audience here, so some good questions. Uh, the first one is about cannabis equity. Mm-hmm. Do you think the cannabis equity program, which gives pre- preferential treatment to nonviolent drug offenders, is working? And if so, why is the community hurt the most by marijuana, the non-white community receiving the lowest number of cannabis business licenses? I I don't think it's working. And I think part of it is in order to open a a cannabis business in San Francisco, especially if you um, don't have one now, it's, it's really expensive. And the process is very challenging. Um, and so I, we're going to be hiring a new person to run this office. And um, the focus is how are we going to make it work? Um, how are we going to make uh, sure that um, because we had anticipated um, there was a tax and we wanted to use the tax to help support um, more equity around cannabis um and it's it's not a lot of money that's mm-hmm. going to do much of anything. And so I, I just think we may need to make some changes to our policies in order to address what we know um, is something that isn't working. And it's okay. Um, it's okay that it's not working because, but but it's more it's better that we're aware of that so that we can fix it. Um, because that's why we hired someone um, new who we're hoping will lead the way and help make it work. Mm-hmm. So the next question is about school. Um, it starts with hello, happy face. <laughs> San Francisco has one of the highest percentages of private school attendance. What are you going to do to boost the appeal of San Francisco public schools? So um, I went to public school and uh, I made it through. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, and I think that um, it, it's really challenging because our public school system operates independently. Um, we have a school superintendent and we have elected members of the school board. And unfortunately, um, you know, oftentimes people do use the school board as a way to, you know, elevate themselves into public office and to other positions. And yes, it's not popular probably for someone to say that, but it's the truth. And, and I think that even though some of those folks who serve on the school board you know, do a great job and are well intended. Um, I, I want to, I want more people on the school board who really care about success and care about the kids and care about making the right investments so that all kids in our public school systems are successful. So, um, I hired, um, a policy advisor for education. And when there was an opening on the school board, I appointed her to that particular seat. Um, not necessarily to push my agenda, but to push an agenda around equity and working with our school systems and how we can get into 
um, really making real reforms that are going to help close the achievement gap um, and, and make our schools better. Because we, we have some great public schools, but not all of them, you know, um, I mean, everyone wants to go to Lowell and probably, I went to Galileo, okay, that's like the best high school in San Francisco. <laughs> um, but, you know, we have some great schools, and I do think that it's important that we work with our superintendent, who I meet with every month, and um, we have a board where we're all getting together with a number of department heads in order to make real change and, and the right kinds of investments in our school system um, to make our schools a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is very challenging. I don't necessarily control um, the school district, uh, but I make it clear um, what my what my desires are and, and that I want to be a partner with the superintendent on changes to policies um, to make sure that our public schools are, are better, mm-hmm. um, especially around, um, like I said, the achievement gap, which is a real challenge. Um, Willie Brown Middle School, uh, where there is a, is a serious challenge of young people who um, have um, uh, need of, you know, mental health support. Uh, because of challenges and trauma and things that they sadly um, have seen and faced um, in their neighborhoods and at home. And I really want to make sure that we have mental health experts who are part of that school, that we really start to look at how do we target the places that we know are challenging and make even more investments, like through the money that we provide, the city and county of San Francisco, through the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, how do we redirect those dollars to make the right investments so that we're really targeting and supporting kids in our public school systems? Um, and so it's something I'm definitely committed to because um, I, I don't know where I'd be without um, our public school system, but I also uh, saw too many of the people I grew up with drop out of school um, and end up in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And in, in unless we make the right investments now, um, we're going to see that cycle continue to repeat itself. So uh, we got a lot of work to do, and I'm definitely committed to working with our superintendent and the school district to try and accomplish it. And what about, I mean, the lottery system? I'm a uh, mother of two kids, and we're looking at schools now, and I feel like it's, you know, the perspective is just opt out. There's also yeah. like myths about it. And people are just like, I don't want to deal with it. People who are privileged to to say that, right. And yeah. they just sort of, you know, in theory, yes, we need to fix the public education system, but like, oh, not my kid. Yeah. So what's your perspective on that? Well, my perspective, I mean, I am not a fan of sending kids all across the city to go to school. Um, I walk to elementary. I went to Rosa Parks, which was called Raffi Wheel. I walked to Ben Franklin Middle School, and it was always a group of us walking to school together. Um, We caught the bus when I went to high school. And I think that creates really a stronger, more resilient community when um, you are able to grow up going to the same schools together. Um, And I, I do think that that needs to change. And so part of what I'm looking at, again, is the data and working with our city attorney's office to figure out um, you know, what we can do, um, whether or not we need to go to the ballot, how does this work with the state and federal laws, what can we do to, to change it? Now, some people may not agree with it because they think, well, some schools are better than others. And if, you know, for example, only the kids who live near Lowell can go to Lowell, that might be a problem, but that's really what our charge is, is, is to do a better job of investing in our schools so that they all are on the same page. And it's not just, you know, I mean, this is not college. This is like high school. Um, this is junior high. This is elementary school. And I do think that we need to do better in terms of our investments and making our schools better. But I, I don't agree with, you know, taking kids all over the, you know, uh, all over the place to get to school um, in our city. And I do think we need to change that. Mm-hmm. So moving on to the next question, which is about uh, challenges that you may have had and that you have articulated really detailed plans for how to address some of San Francisco's most difficult issues. Um, since taking office, what has been a lot tougher than you expected? And do you plan to adjust your approach to that issue or those issues? And if so, how? Okay, so tougher. It's been tough <laughs> repeating myself over and over again to <laughs> sometimes bureaucrats. Um, it's frustrating. Um, and I, I will say that 
Um, I'm very impatient. So waiting for something to happen, um, is something that is hard for me. Um, because I, I just don't understand sometimes why, um, especially if I, you know, I'm the mayor and I ask you and I want it done now. Um, so one of the things I shouldn't even tell you guys, I did this, but, um, I was so mad about a pothole one time. Um, and I had a little bit of time. So I like had, you know, I, we pulled over and I, I, I waited, I, I called and yelled at three people to come and fix it. And it, because it was dangerous and I'm just like, how could we allow this stuff to happen? And, and I get that. Uh, but, but I, I, based on how it looked, it had been like that probably a really long time and no one did anything about it. And so what I, you know, I'm like, did you fill the pothole? Yourself? I didn't fill it myself. What, what no, no, I didn't fill it myself. I just got out and waited till someone showed up to, you know, like basically block it off and, and we, we needed to deal with it. And, and I think, you know, trying to change behavior has been hard because, from my perspective, everything is, is urgent, right? Whether it's a pothole, whether it's helping someone get off the streets, whatever the, whether it's a mattress or trash. I mean, all I do all day, a lot of times is I'm in the car texting people where to go and what to do. And I also make sure I take that route back to make sure that it's fixed on my way back. Um, and I'm obsessed with that. Which is, by the way, part of what it means to be a mayor. I mean, right? oh my like, keeping track of this stuff. But but the thing is, you know, I just didn't think it would be so hard um, sometimes to get people to do what you ask them to do. And and honestly, sadly, it's what their job is to do, especially because of how much money we spend. And I get upset, and that's I say it every time I'm yelling at someone about how much money we're spending on your department, and this should not be a problem, and this should be fixed, and this needs to get done. And and people are saying, well, you need to be nicer. And I'm trying to be nicer. <laughs> I am trying to be nice. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to be nice, and um, but I'm, I'm impatient. And Miss Brown, tough love coming out, right? Well, Miss, the, the other thing is we lived in public housing, but we had to sweep the porch. We had to put the hot water with the soap and sweep the porch and clean up, clean up the grass in front of our house. Like we had a responsibility to keep our our community clean, and that's how Miss Brown raised me. And it, it happened when I was at the African-American Art and Culture Complex. The kids, they cleaned up. They took care of the place. They took a lot of pride. And I just, I, I think part of it is I want people to feel proud of the city. I want them to take pride in the city and feel responsible for it. Um, and so, I mean, I did that in my district, but my district is one thing. Now I'm like citywide and it's like now it's... It's, it's like, I can't even keep track with it. And so it's always meetings and conversations and, you know, where's the beat officers? Where's the clean team? Where's the this? Where's the that? Where are they? I want to know where they are right now because of how much money we spend. And, you know, we need to see results. I need to know what is going on. Um, and, and, and I just didn't think, um, it would be so difficult sometimes mm -hmm. to, um, get the results that, I feel should just happen naturally without me spending so much time on these issues. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy someone asked this question because I would have um, asked it and we touched on it a little bit um, regarding homelessness and what ordinary people can do. And the question is how can the average citizen make a positive impact on this city in the, on the micro scale? Ooh, let's see. Oh goodness. Well, make sure you clean up after yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Don't throw any trash on the ground. Um, I think part of it is um, getting involved in various capacities. Um, there's boards, there's commissions, there's nonprofit organizations that are doing great work. Um, so when I was in the Western Edition community, for example, we had this program called Mo Magic. Um, and what was so amazing about this, this is all the nonprofit agencies that serve children, um, and we were like partners. But we had, you know, these, these people who, this person was responsible for the backpack giveaway. This person was responsible for the health fair. A lot of volunteers, a lot of people who were actively engaged and took 
ownership of these various things that we would host and do in the neighborhoods. And they made life so easy. Mm -hmm. Um, and it made such a difference for the community. So I think there are various ways, depending on what your interests are, um, to get actively engaged, whether it's boards, commissions, organizations, um, and just really investing, um, your time into that organization and the relationships. Because the other thing is, um, you know, those folks who have been working with us in the community for so long, you know, their kids grew up with the kids in the neighborhood and they're all mostly adults now. And those relationships still exist. Um, and, and it's, it's ultimately what I'm, I'm hoping to do is to create, a better San Francisco through communities. And, and that is really important. And I think getting involved means getting involved in your community in in some capacity or something that you're really passionate about. When you say that too, I mean, it makes me think of, that's what I think of as old San Francisco and the San Mm -hmm. Francisco I grew up in where you knew somebody's auntie and the cousin and the, you know, there was a real (laughs) connectivity. And what I hear in both of these responses is also that we need to get back to that sense of community and part of what we as individuals can be doing in our neighborhoods or wherever it may be in our workplaces is building that right and building and it starts with relationships i was really struck by when we were talking about homelessness you said we know who those folks are Mm -hmm. right when the rest of us are walking down the street I, i i doubt anyone thinks like oh i know that person i know their name i know where they live i know where they came from um, so you, as mayor, you through the government, you have these relationships, right? These institutional relationships. But there's a lot that we as the public and as citizens can be doing to help bolster that. Yeah, and, and I think we are also consumed with, like, technology nowadays and our phones. And um, there used to be a time where people would just talk to each other. <laughs> um, and I think that's changed. And I do think we need to get back to some basics here because... Um, when you know the folks in your neighborhood, when you're actively engaged in various communities, that's how relationships form. That's how the help that people need happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I've been able to, there, there was one guy in particular, um, in my, uh, uh, not in my neighborhood, but my district when I was supervisor, um, he was, you know, going through a really tough time and clearly something was going on, you know, mentally and all the neighbors knew him, all the neighbors kind of contacted me and we were able to get in and to help him and, you know, help him transition into a facility so that he could be cared for. And it was a process and it was because of the neighbors. And he is exactly the kind of person who unfortunately could have ended up homeless, Mm -hmm. um, because he didn't have any family and, but the neighborhood really looked looked out for him. And so, um, I, I just think that a lot of things can be avoided, uh, by making sure that there's a connection to people in San Francisco in, in some capacity and getting involved, um, just like you did earlier, where you had to say hi and introduce yourself to someone you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the kinds of things that are really going to help make our city better, I believe. And, and, and that's how I've met so many amazing people is boards or commissions or volunteering, um, and doing things. Um, and, and that's, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I, th- I mean, I, I think about that and even just my, it's an easy thing that each, each of us can do in our daily lives. Right. Yeah. And I find myself, um, in many ways, I think it's almost modeling it for my kids, but mm-hmm. getting off the phone when I'm running, yes, I may have an Uber waiting for me outside while I'm grabbing coffee, but like get off the phone. Do you know the name of the barista? Does your kid know? Right. And just engaging more. And it's an easy thing to do, but you have to be actively thinking about it and committing to it and showing up. Right. Yeah, definitely. So the next question is about um, collaboration and business, and it is what is or are the multi-sector collaborations you're most excited about, and what industries have the biggest responsibility in addressing the most challenging issues such as housing? So I'm, I'm most excited about the collaboration with a number of companies here in San Francisco and our opportunities for all, as I mentioned earlier. Um, opportunities all for all is my commitment to ensure that every high school student in San Francisco has a paid access to a paid internship. Um, and um, so many companies have rose to the occasion with not only contributions um, to help fund those um, internships, but also their willingness to take on high school students. 
Um, and so I'm pretty excited about that because um, this opens the doors of opportunity for, for young kids to learn about all of these incredible industries in, in San Francisco. My first job was, well, I babysat. I took people's groceries to their car. I did things like that. But I also um, got my first job at 14 working for the mayors through the mayor's youth employment and training program at a nonprofit agency. And I always tell people about how, I mean, you know, like I said, I had challenges. And so I didn't necessarily dress appropriately for the work environment. I'd answer the phone like, hello, hello. (laughs) No, London, that's not how you answer the phone. So I became, hello, this is London Bree. Thank you for calling the family school. So I had to change my tone. I had to change everything. But just imagine if I never had that opportunity, how would I know to do that? And I think we take that for granted because you know, again, it goes back to my experience and working with young people and, and, and my environment and, and those kids not understanding or what it is to be in a professional environment. And so opportunities for all is really about exposure. Um, it's about us taking responsibility for everybody else's kids because we can't just think my kids, my kids, my kids. We have to take responsibility for all kids um, ultimately and make sure that we're making the right investments for their future. And so um, I'm excited about that. I think this program is going to be absolutely amazing. Um, and don't worry for those of you who want to take on the responsibility of working with a young high school person. Um, we have uh, training and other things for the most challenging of uh, kids, and those are usually the best ones to work with. Um, so that's that's something I'm um, I'm most uh, most excited about. Awesome. So this is the last question, and it's an inform tradition to ask all of our speakers this uh, final question: What is your sixty second idea to make the world a better place? Oh my god. Make the world a better place. I would, I would say that um, the thing that I think is so important to equity is ensuring that everyone has a safe, affordable place to call home. Um, I just feel like everyone deserves to have a roof over their head. And if we could make something like that happen throughout the world um, and make sure that people aren't without food, um, they aren't without a, a roof over their head and they're able to live um, in a safe, affordable, clean place to call home, um, I think life would be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to close out, thank oh. you, Mayor London Breed, for joining us tonight here at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mina Harris, and thank you to our audiences on the radio and listening at home, and I hope all of you have a great evening. Thank you.